Good day and welcome to the T-Mobile Sprint Regulatory Update Conference Call. Today's conference is being recorded. At this time, I would like to turn the conference over to Ethan Lacey. Please go ahead. Yeah, hi. Thanks, Ashlyn. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Ethan Lacey and I do TMT Specialty Sales at New Street. I want to thank you for joining us today for our T-Mobile Sprint Regulatory Update Call. We appreciate you all uh, dialing in, you know, which has, you know, been the case in recent weeks, very last minute, unfortunately, but obviously uh, the situation has remained uh, fluid over the last month. So we're trying to stay on top of the facts in the news cycle uh, around the deal as best as possible. From New Street on the call today, we have Blair Levin and uh, Vivek Stalem. As always, the more interactive, the better. Uh, there won't be any slides for this call, but feel free to send in any questions that you might have for either Blair or Vivek. Uh, I'm happy to answer them at ethan.lacy at newstreetresearch.com. Blair, for those of you who don't know him, is our TMT regulatory analyst, former FCC chief of staff, and author of the National Broadband Plan. And as always with these calls, that's probably a great place to start. So I'm going to hand it over to Blair. Good afternoon, everybody. What I thought I'd do is speak very quickly about where I think the state of play is today, knowing that it can change as early as in the middle of this call. Um, and as late as I think next, by the, by the middle of next week, we'll have new facts. But we now know some facts that we did not know the last time we had a call like this. We know that uh, there is a critical mass of states that is willing to sue, uh, and have they, they have sued. We'll talk more about that. We now know who the judge is. I think that's very important. We now know that it's likely to move to a court proceeding that puts the deadline for when this deal gets back finally resolved back by, at a minimum, several months, could be as much as a year or even more, unless there is a deal at the DOJ that satisfies the states, um, either convinces them they have very little chance of winning on a, uh, in, in court, or that actually says, causes them to think, you know, we now have a viable fourth, uh, and we'll just claim that it was our lawsuit that uh, caused that to happen. So that's those are four big things that we uh, know I'm going to drill down a little bit, but that's a big change from, uh, I think, a week ago. As to the states, we published a piece immediately upon uh, getting the news that they were going to sue. Um, I think that we did not include the fact, which we didn't see until they had a complaint, that they've actually hired outside counsel um, uh, of person from Munger Tolls, a very distinguished Los Angeles law firm. It's registered under California. I think California has the ability to hire. Um, but this is a real antitrust lawyer. He's a real antitrust team. Um, he was the lawyer who, interestingly, was hired by the DOJ uh, in case the AT&T T-Mobile deal was going to go to trial. But he's won some important victories in antitrust and other places. Uh, there may be some other states. Uh, particularly Democratic states that may join. I don't really think that's material. I think there are some Republican states, clearly if the DOJ uh, decides to block it, I think there will be some Republican states that join along. Uh, and that that's mildly material. Um, but but I don't think that's, that's important. I think it's important to understand that the states, by suing, um, uh, have ch changed the leverage points a little bit, but they always retain the option to walk away. Um, and again, simply, they, if, if the deal that is struck is significantly better than the deal that the FCC struck, they will have, at least from a political perspective, the ability to claim credit 
course, in today's Washington, anyone can claim credit for anything. So, but they at least within their own constituencies can hold their heads up high. There are a lot of questions about that, why they filed. As we wrote, and I think as a lot of other people wrote, it may be that because they thought that Macon was on the verge of approving the deal. Certainly, I think that's part of it. But I want to start by saying, I think they actually, they think they're correct. They think this is a deal that violates the Clayton Act. And so I, I think it's important to remember, this is not just about politics. There actually are some legal principles involved and, and certainly from the staff perspective, not allowing a highly concentrated market to move to an even more concentrated market is an important thing. Second, they were indeed worried about making, but they're not sure what he's going to do because I don't think anyone is sure because I don't think he knows yet what he's going to do. But by, by doing this, they avoid a situation where the FCC can act, make connect, can act, the companies can close really quickly without any kind of uh, court intervention. That's still a possibility, but that possibility is diminished. Third, and perhaps maybe the most important, is in a way they're making Macon an offer he can't refuse. Now, actually, he can refuse it, but but from a way of thinking about it, it's like, okay, Macon, I know the FCC is putting pressure on you to join Team Red. We're going to put pressure on you to join Team Antitrust. That may be a slightly unfair characterization, but I'm trying to put it in the from the perspective of the, the states. And what I mean by that is, now that you know that we're going to sue, and now that you know who the judge is, Macon, you face a very substantial risk that your legacy at the DOJ will be the guy who lost his first big case for blocking a deal he shouldn't have blocked, and then for not blocking a deal that he he should have blocked. So that's kind of the boxing him in in a way that is very similar to what Ajit was trying to do. And finally, I think they were giving leverage to some of the bidders who really could provide a fourth alternative uh, in the wireless sector. Uh, I think it is now harder for Macon to accept a deal with a pure financial buyer. He still may do that, but the odds of that have largely gone down. Let's talk about the judge for a second. There's no particular case that he has done that I think gives insight into this, so we're still researching that, and that's a hard thing to do. We know he was a Clinton appointee. We know he's a New Yorker who lives on the Upper West Side. I think it's a pretty good pick for the states. They obviously chose uh, to go to a district where there were no Trump district court judges, and so their odds of getting a judge who would look at this in a certain way, I think, were, were was pretty good. He, I should also note he's a senior judge, so he had certain optionality. That is to say he probably could have turned it down, which means he probably likes his case and wants it, and I think that that plays into it. To me, the, the big thing is when you read a lot of analysis, I think everyone agrees, and, it's, and I certainly agree, that if the DOJ joins the states, the odds of them winning are significantly are, – are, are pretty good. If it's just the states, the odds diminish. A lot of people think they diminish from, like, 70 to zero. I've never understood that. I think they diminish a little bit, but not not a huge amount with this particular judge, because I don't think this particular judge is going to say, well, you know, the DOJ is, uh, and the, the antitrust division is just an expert agency, and they're just doing this on the basis of expert economics and stuff like that. I, I think 
at this moment in time, the combination of the Attorney General, what's going on in Washington, with the press reports on this deal, a lot of news about how the White House favors this deal and is putting pressure on it. That I don't know that it's evidence in the court, but I suspect that influences a judge. And therefore, the delta between what having the DOJ join and not having the DOJ join is diminished. And instead, it's just the facts in the context of antitrust precedent. So that judge now becomes, again, if there's a, if there's a deal struck, we'll talk about that in a second. This goes away. But, but if there isn't, this judge is the decider. Let me just mention two quick things that I heard the other day from investors. Some people believe there is a federal preemption and the states don't have standing to sue. That's just wrong. And I think if you read the Clayton Act, it's wrong. It is certainly true that this hasn't happened before. But again, we have so many things that haven't happened before that that ship has sailed. And then secondly, I heard, uh, I think it was Charles Gasparino, who said, eh, Timo may lose because any one judge can do anything, but, but they've got a great shot at the Court of Appeals. That's actually dead wrong when it comes to antitrust. And the reason is the Court of Appeals overturns um, district courts when there's a rule, when there's an issue of law that's different. But as to the facts, the Court of Appeals look at the facts the way they are. If this were a case where the judge, in order to rule for the states, had to make new law, that would be a plausible argument. But in this case, I, I think if the judge decides to rule for the states, he can he can write basically a judgment-proof opinion. And given his experience, I know he I assume he knows how to do that, where it's very factually based and therefore very hard to overturn it. This is not a case where, like the Open Markets Institute is is suggesting that we expand the meaning of antitrust and bring in other kinds of criteria. If anything, it's it's interesting because it's actually Ajit Pai and maybe Macon Delahim making an argument that antitrust ought to be more than just about consumers. It ought to be about national competitiveness. It ought to be about rural broadband deployment or something like that. But if you just look at traditional antitrust, if, and the judge decides to rule that way, I don't think it, it, you can try in the Court of Appeals, but I don't think you're likely to, to succeed. And you saw that with Judge Leon's opinion. And finally, let me conclude by just saying, to me, the, the fundamentals are, do we, uh, everybody writes about there, there'll be more concessions. I don't really think that's the point. I think it's the combination of concessions with a potential buyer. You could offer a $20 billion package to Blair Levine Enterprises that, that I pay a billion dollars for, that's not a real deal. That's a lot of concessions, and I would be very grateful and think it's totally in the public interest, particularly if I could turn around and sell it for 10 But But I don't think that's going to fool anybody. It's really the combination of what assets provided to what entity means there'll really be a force. The DOJ laid that out in paragraph 45 of the 2011 complaint against AT&T. It's national network, national spectrum, trusted brand, tens of millions of customers. What DISH and Charlie need is different than what the cable industry need. If you put them all together, you need different things. If, you know, I, I, I think Amazon's not on the list. Google's not on the list. They're not that interested. But it, it's that combination. And so you either come out with a package that looks like the combination is within the 
2011 framework, or it's not, or it's a financial buyer. If it's within the 2011 framework, again, I think the states probably walk away. If it's not, I think they don't. I think that decision is – the timetable for that decision is probably by Friday. I think they want to get it done so that the FCC can incorporate it into their item, which the FCC wants to release on Wednesday, so the commissioners can vote it at the July 10th meeting. So, in other words, there's going to be more news flow either this week or maybe early next week. The FCC order is going to be interesting for lawyers. I don't think it's going to be that interesting for investors. And then the next stage, I think, is we'll see how the states react to whatever the actual deal is, and then there'll probably be a meeting up to court to determine the timing of whether it be a preliminary injunction motion hearing or whether we go right to a trial. We could chat about that if that's of interest, but, again, we'll know a lot more next week. With that, Ethan, let me turn it back to you and see if there are questions. Thank you, Claire. That was uh, that was great. I already have a couple that I've gotten from the field. But Ashton, can you uh, at least cue the lines, please, for any questions? Yes, of course. If you would like to ask a question over the phone, please signal by pressing star one. Blair, while we're waiting, maybe I can just sort of jump in for your perspective and then Vivek's perspective because they're probably going to be a little bit different. But can we just talk about, you know, the idea of Charter Altice and DISH looking at potential assets? I guess, Blair, for you, you obviously just touched on this to some degree, but would that meet the DOJ's need for a fourth competitor? Uh, in your view, I guess you were kind of qualifying that just now. And then for Vake, I guess my question to you would be, what assets do you think Cable's interested in? What assets do you think Dish might be interested in? Thanks. So I, I think it's obviously stronger if it includes Comcast because Charger and Altice are not national per se. But if they get national spectrum, and they also, and even stronger if they do a deal with Dish. So that's interesting because they are competitors in the multi-channel video business. But if, but if you have them all enter and say we're going to offer wireless everywhere, I think the DOJ would be satisfied, and I think uh, the states would be satisfied. Obviously, the details matter, but fundamentally, I think it's hard to argue. That that's not that that wouldn't be a real fourth uh, competitor. So cer- certainly, from a kind of political slash optics perspective, that would be real. Great, thank you. Okay, mate, I'd just be curious what your thoughts are as far as what Charter and Altice might want, and then what Dish might be looking for. Yeah. So as far as you know, what Charter and Altice are looking for, you know, we've laid out the case that. We think the 2.5 gigahertz spectrum would be really interesting to the cable guys um, because it would allow them to sort of uh, execute on their small cell strategy in terms of building out a wireless network. They're likely also interested in improved MVNO terms. We think the Verizon MVNO offers them a lot of value because it's you know perpetual index to retail rates, et cetera. But um, there may be some aspects of core control that they might be able to get out of a deal concession that they don't seem to have with Verizon today. As far as Dish, I think their interest is, you know, primarily in access to the underlying network infrastructure that Proforma T-Mobile would have. So things like, um, you know, reduced rates on tower leases or access to backhaul, things of that nature. They may be interested in the spectrum and the boost assets as well, but it, you know, it, it wouldn't be the most valuable piece to them. 
Ethan, can I offer just one other quick thought? Please. I, I, I know the Bloomberg reporters, I think, very, very highly of them. Um, one of the really interesting things in this whole process has been the delicate dance between all all the different stakeholders trying to convince them that certain things are true. It wouldn't have, you know, I, I, there, were, there was a rumor floating around last week that the original rumor about Comcast was started by T-Mobile to try to get Charlie interested because uh, if he thought that Comcast was interested, he would say, oh, my God, I have to do a deal now or never. The article today may have the same problem, which is to say I find it a little bit strange because, remember, with Altice, there were conditions that were offered to the FCC as if that would solve Altice's objection to the deal. And within a day, Altice was saying, they don't solve our problems. We still think you should uh, kill the deal. So is it really true that Altice is now interested in this stuff? Maybe, but it could be that people are saying Charter and Altice are interested to try to get, you know, Charlie more interested or Charlie more interested to try to get yeah, there, there's there's so many different ways in which the game of mirrors that Washington often generates it, it could be creating some false illusions. I think we'll get clarity on this within a reasonably short period of time, but I, I don't think we should take it as 100% true. Even though, again, highest respect for the reporters, they they have very good sources, but given the nature of this. We can't really know who is negotiating and whether that negotiation is because they want to strike a deal or because they want to stay at the table as long as possible. Got it. And before I check the phone lines, I probably just want to touch on questions around injunctions. I, I think this is where I've gotten probably the greatest volume of questions, Blair, uh, in a number of different iterations. But for the most part, they go along the lines of, can an injunction only happen after the FCC and, and the California PUC approve uh, the deal, rather, you know, sometime in, in uh, mid-July? Or they come in the form of what is the likelihood of state AGs, you know, being able to get an injunction, stop T-Mobile from going ahead, you know, with integration on the deal? Right. So I, I'm going to reframe the question, which I hopefully answers everyone's question, which is what are the odds of the state, action uh, preventing a closing before a court actually rules on something, right? You know, theoretically, the the, D, uh, the companies could close after the, D, after the FCC acts in, on July 10th, after California rules, which should be July or August, and after the DOJ essentially signals it's not going to sue the block. Then they would be free to close unless a court formally enjoins them, or there is some agreement. I think what happens is that the parties go to New York and meet with the judge, and they set out a timetable. And I I don't know. It's interesting. I haven't heard anything from T-Mobile. They've got much better lawyers than me. They're thinking about all of these things. It could be what they're going to say to the judges. We need to close. So if you want to enjoin us, go ahead and enjoin us. But Otherwise, we're just going to close, in which case the judge might say, okay, tell you what, let's just have a hearing on a preliminary injunction in three or four days. And the judge says, 
I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> now let's talk about the trial. That's one scenario. Another scenario is they, they say we really we need an expedited hearing on this. Uh, we understand that as a formal matter, it wouldn't be ripe until we have the ability to close. So let's just schedule a hearing like, you know, the day after California or something like that as soon as possible. And the states may agree, may not agree. Um, one of the things I should note about the states, I, I think they have a, um, just on the basis of the facts, as I understand, in the antitrust law, they have a very decent argument. They will, unlike the DOJ, which has already taken a lot of affidavits and things, they will start a little bit behind, but I think they can, they can make up for that. But it could be that they decide to do that. Another thing that could happen is the deal, is that the companies may believe they actually have a stronger case on the merits. The problem with a preliminary injunction is it's, you know, the judge is just doing it on the basis of kind of a paper record, and simplicity often wins that. I think T-Mobile's argument, and there's a lot of validity to the argument, but it's a complicated argument because it runs up against a lot of traditional antitrust uh, doctrine. But, you know, you really got you got to explain capacity and networks and so all, all kinds of other stuff. We, I, I'm not saying it's that complicated, but it's complicated. And they may be better off in a trial. But but my big point is that's where their their lawyers are going to figure that out. And they're figuring it out relatively soon if they haven't figured it out already. And and after the FCC issues its document and the DOJ makes its decision, I would expect to have some kind of agreement struck by the court between the parties in which the states agree to effectively expedite a certain kind of hearing and the companies agree not to close. That would be my expectation. But, again, we've never been in this situation, so it may be that some clever lawyers figure out other things, right? Right. right. And I think, like, another way that the question has come to me is just won't the parties argue they can close immediately following DOJ and CPUC approval, and at that point the states ask for uh, a temporary restraining order, and that, you know, temporary restraining order, you know, gets granted before we go down this whole path of, you know, it's going to take several months to close. Yeah, I think actually, uh, technically, and I could be wrong about this, it's been 25 years since I've litigated, but I think they asked for a preliminary injunction. A temporary restraining order would be, if they close, then you get a temporary restraining order to essentially mean that they can't to restrain their activities and in integrating the companies. That's a higher standard, harder to get, you know, yada, yada, yada. But if the, if the companies say we have a right to close as soon as California rules, then what, what the companies can't do is make the argument that Groucho Marx made in the movie Duck Soup in which Chico raises an issue and Harpo says you can't bring that up. That's new business. Any other new business, no other new, any other old business, no, okay, now let's move the new business, and then he raises again and says, nope, you can't raise that because now it's old business. You, you, you can't put the companies, you can't put the states in a position where there's literally no time when they could get an order from the court preventing a closing. So it's either before California or immediately after California, but there has to be a period of time when the, comp- when the states can go to the court and say, we need you to block them from closing this deal and beginning the integration and and stopping the competition that currently exists. Got it. Great. Ashley? 
Are there any questions on the call? There are no questions over the phone at this time. Okay. Thanks. I'm just going to come back to a few more that I've received from the field then. Trying to unpack a little bit more today's headline uh, for either Blair or Vivek. Do you think that all three Charter, Altice, and DISH need to be parties uh, to a deal for the fourth competitor framework to hold? Uh, I, I don't. I think DISH could do it on its own. It may well be stronger if it's all three. Again, you have a certain kind of curiosity about how do we feel about a deal in which people who are competing in one market are cooperating in in another, and what what are the implications of that? I think it's a little bit trickier if you ask Charter and Altice, can they do it on their own? They they certainly could if they had the spectrum and they had an MVNO and stuff like that, but you really wonder whether Charter wants to go into competition in Comcast area with a 5G product. That would be interesting, but, you know, um, uh, I'm, I'm skeptical that that would be the end point. Right. Yeah. Um, hey, this is Vivek. I, I would ag- I would agree with Blair on that. Um, it's hard to see the cable guys doing it on a regional basis. I think it sort of begs the question about the uh, the national market if Comcast isn't included. But you know, Dish I think would satisfy the sort of nationwide requirements that the DOJ laid out in its AT&T T-Mobile complaint back in 2011. Got it. Helpful. And then, Blair, I think you kind of covered this next one in your opening remarks, but if both the FCC and the DOJ strongly support the deal and are willing to testify on the merits of the deal as experts, that should more or less do it for the companies in terms of a win against the state AGs in court, right? I mean, I know your odds are probably... Okay. Let me just say, I, I, I hear this a lot. I think it's an interesting question of whether... If I were the companies, I would want either to testify. I also think it's an interesting question. If I were either of them, I would want to testify. I believe that both Delrakeem and Ajit have significant vulnerabilities as a witness. I'm not opining on their moral character, nor am I opining on their intelligence. I'm just telling you that these are not guys who are used to being cross-examined. And the notion that Ajit Pai, who performs very, very well in front of the Senate committee, would do the same in front of an experienced cross-examiner when he would have to justify his dissents in, for example, the uh, DirecTV AT&T deal or the charter deal where he, you know, I don't think I'm being unfair, said almost precisely the opposite of what he said to justify this deal. Not to mention, you know, there are lots of other questions that I think he would feel uncomfortable answering, such as who did you meet with at the White House? He could say, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that's executive privilege. I don't know that a court's going to agree with that. And, you know, the way the way depositions work, you can't just say that. <laughs> you know, you, you actually have to answer the question. And then the question is whether it's part of the record. Uh, and you're under oath. And, you know, like, who else did you meet with at the DOJ? You know, did you ever meet with Bill Barr? And, these are a bunch of – these are going to be uncomfortable questions for him. I also, frankly, don't think that he would prove to be that agile witness on the antitrust merits of this. And, you know, why didn't the DOJ – why didn't the FCC, which always uses porting data, choose not to use it in this case? I'm not sure he'd be that good a witness on this. And the same with Elohim, who is, again, good at press conferences, 
He's given a lot of speeches. He's good at that. As a witness, he would be asked a lot of questions. I don't know that he would be that comfortable answering. Uh, he, he he's he's not an antitrust litigator. That's not what he's done. So so that would be my my first point. I would be very nervous actually if I were the companies uh, bringing it up. But there's maybe a bigger point, and and this goes to to what extent does the judge say I'm simply going to trust the expertise of the existing agencies, and you know I I I really don't want to sound like a partisan here. I want to describe what has happened in D.C. Uh, and it's by the way it's happened everywhere. There's a wonderful podcast series by Michael Lewis on. Uh, about referees in society, which, by the way, includes people like Wall Street analysts, and you know, makes a big point about how we're no longer trusted the same way. And and that that is true. And I think if a judge says, this isn't about my trust, this is about what are the facts, how do you, how do you apply the law to it? And I literally don't care what conclusion the DOJ reached. And part of the reason I don't care is because there's all these press reports that it was reached because of White House pressure. <clears throat> I don't really care. I'm going to be like Judge Leon and not ask the question of of what did the White House say. I'm simply going to look at the facts of this case. I'm simply going to apply the antitrust precedents to it and let the chips fall where they may. I think that's the more like that's going to be his more likely uh, point of view on it. Um, could be wrong about that. I think if you've gotten a different kind of judge. I would be more willing to concede that the the DOJ and the FCC have the carry stronger weight. I just don't see it with this judge in the same way. Right, and I think you kind of just answered this this next question. But if the DOJ staff recommended against approval, but it was approved anyways by the chair, can the state AGs depose the DOJ and its staff for documents and analysis? I think the answer to that is no. They cannot depose them. The document cannot be put into the record. Very interesting question, and if I'm wrong, I think that's quite material. But uh, my understanding is pretty much everything that the lawyers did is attorney-client work product. But part of the problem of both Ajit and Macon is their own thinking is not attorney-client privilege. They're the clients. And so they would have to answer certain questions. I'm not sure they have to answer every question about what the staff told them, but they'd have to answer certain questions uh, for which there is no privilege and and which I think could prove problematic, or I would certainly be nervous about if I were the states. And not to mention having to make, you know, lots of emails available and other kinds of documents for which they don't actually have a privilege. Like, you know, right. emails from the White House. I, I don't, that's not an attorney-client thing. I mean, it is for justice, I suppose, but not for the FCC. Wonderful. I've got Go ahead. a few more here, but I'm just going to make sure that okay. there's no one on the, uh, on the line. Ashlyn? Uh, no, there are no questions on the line at this time. Okay, great. Blair, for just coming back to uh, the states, the question is just, and I believe you said they are unrelated or mutually exclusive in the past, but the question is, are the California, is there any, correlation, or can we read anything into the fact that the California AGs have filed against the transaction uh, and, and how that may or may not relate to the California PUC, PUC approval? Yeah, look, the, the PUC has different jurisdiction. They're under a different law. Um, they're, they're answering a different question. 
uh, generally speaking, PUCs do not prevent any deals from closing. There's all kinds of machinations that are, you know, it's definitely sausage making where the companies agree to certain things and the PUC transfers the license. And that, that's, that, that's the way it usually works. I don't dismiss the possibility that if the companies don't agree to essentially not close until there's a judicial hearing, that the PUC may choose not to transfer the license. They could delay the meeting. They could vote against it. They're forcing T-Mobile to go to court. There's a variety of games that can be played out. I just think that at the end of the day, the companies, if the states don't walk away because of a deal struck at the DOJ and they want to litigate, that the companies and the states will come to some agreement in which uh, in exchange for expediting matters, the, the companies agree not to close. That, that, that's not that the most rational thing always happens, but in this case, that's the most likely thing I think that can happen. But if, you know, look, if people want to play hardball, there's all kinds of other things. The states could file, I, I don't know, I suppose they could, the states could start filing individual claims under state antitrust law uh, in their states and cause a plethora of lawsuits. I don't think that happens, but it, could it happen? Yeah. There may be other uh, mechanisms that the T-Mobile lawyers have thought of. Thank you. Helpful. And I just want to kind of, touch a little bit more on some of the potential concessions here, specifically around uh, Spectrum. I've got a few questions there. One is uh, what build-out requirements would a company, a Spectrum, purchase uh, as part of a larger deal? And then, Vivek, I just want to come back to you as well on your early comments about what, uh, you know, Charter or Altice or even Dish might want. Uh, I guess the question would just be around 2.5. Are there any issues with T-Mobile divesting too much of the 2.5 as it relates to uh, them making good on the in-home broadband commitments that they've already made to the FCC. Thanks. Hey, it's Vic. I guess I'll take the second one first. Um, So, you know, I I think that we were in our analysis right on the sort of razor's edge in terms of could they actually serve, you know, a meaningful portion of the population with in-home broadband. We came out at a around a 5 million and change number in terms of what they would actually be able to serve uh, based on their build out and pro forma spectrum absent divestitures. I, you know, I honestly haven't run the numbers with, you know, 20 or 40 megahertz of the 2.5 divested. I would think that it probably comes down a fair amount, but, you know, I think that as far as, you know, our initial view, we didn't think that they would be terribly disruptive in the in-home broadband market to begin with. So, uh, you know, not a, not a huge change relative to our prior view on that. Yeah, and, and let me just add, as to build-out requirements, um, build-out requirements have a very mixed record for, for lots of different reasons I won't go into. What I think, the way I think it works in this case is there is a particularly beneficial MVNO that runs for a number of years, and the idea is when that MBNO runs out, you better have your own network or you don't have a business. Or you are or you're at the mercy of a relatively limited wholesale market. So that's that is a better sword uh than a build out requirement. But having said that, might there be a build out requirement? Sure. But what you know it's kinda of like what what's the point of that? If the idea is this is supposed to be a viable, sustainable thing, shouldn't they have the incentive to build out? Again, 
if they just want to give away Spectrum cheap, I'd rather they give it to me. But, you know, and then that that's not a mechanism for creating a fourth competitor, right? So it's not clear to me that a build-out requirement matters in fact, but it may be the political optics of it are, are better because people don't understand them very well. Okay, and then that was actually my next question for you, Blair, was just what, I guess you kind of touched on it, but what interim MVNO terms would be required to satisfy the DOJ? Do we, do we have any sort of idea on well, I, my, my reaction to that, though, I, I welcome to Vex Comics, uh, is I totally trust Charter and Charlie and Altice to understand what they need better than I understand what they need. In other words, if they, if they agree to an MBA, a, a five-year MBNO deal with the notion that after five years they'll have their own network everywhere because they've got this national spectrum, Far be it for me to think that I'm a better negotiator than their lawyers. If they've agreed to a deal, they must believe that that will give them what they need to have a, a sustainable business to ramp up for five years. So I don't have any, you know, I, I kind of know what some of the elements are, but I think the fact that they've agreed to it is really uh, the critical point. Okay. And and it wouldn't be a call on T-Mobile and Sprint without you know some kind of headline uh, on the tape in the middle of the call. I haven't even read the article yet, but I am seeing that T-Mobile Sprint, uh, to proceed with the deal, fight the lawsuit. Uh, this is according to Gasparino. I don't think you need to necessarily process that flared the same way we, you know, did the last time we were in the middle of the call and we were, yes, we yeah. <laughs> If he's coming out with the scoop that they're going to fight the lawsuit, I grant him that is, that is one heck of a scoop. No, who could have predicted that? I have a, a number of questions just on the states specifically, um, all kind of just focused around acceptable divestitures. You know, so kind of the meat of the question is what is the minimum or what would TMS have to do to get the states on board? And does it have to be the, you know, is the 2011 framework, you know, the, the litmus test or the barometer or can it, can it be less? In, in my discussions with various folks, it has been general, which is, Look, if there's a real fourth competitor, you know, fine. But if there's not, we'll just continue with the litigation. There, so I, I, I guess there's both a political and a legal question, which is uh, politically what looks like a fourth, and legally what do you think you can win? So as I talked about earlier, it's really a combination of the concessions with who the concessions are going to that matters. And I think if the states think that either A, they look bad, or B, they're very likely to lose, they they just claim that it was because of them that that deal was struck. But I, I don't, but, but there's not like a single, there's got to be at least this much spectrum, or there's got to be at least this long an MVNO, or the price freeze has to be an extra five, you know, an extra three or four years. Or I, That's not the way I think it works. Okay, and then uh, I guess for vague for you, always in the background through this process, there's been a question of where do T-Mobile and Sprint walk away? Um, that's probably really not necessarily for us to address, but like any thoughts you might have on what type of concessions to set up a fourth competitor would sort of be the breaking point or where you know T-Mobile and Sprint would walk away from the deal at. Yeah, so I think you know the, the companies are in a bit of a different position. I think Sprint probably is okay with 
uh, almost any set of conditions. As, you know, even if the merger agreement gets restru restruck, they probably don't have many better options. I think, you know, for T-Mobile, um, there's probably uh, some point at which they would walk away if, you know, the only buyer left was someone who could be highly disruptive and wireless, like an Amazon, um, who has a history of wrecking industries they enter. Uh, I would expect that, you know, T-Mobile would walk away from that. I think Dish and Cable, it would depend on sort of the exact terms that they're able to agree on. I mean, uh, if it's a perpetual MVNO that offers core control and um, is totally free to cable or dish, I, I don't think T-Mobile would go for that. So there's a question of you know what specific features in an MVNO um, and pricing on the MVNO would be uh, before they walked away. Got it. Thank you. And then Blair, I just wanted to come back to the judge. There, I've had a few questions for people that weren't familiar with the judge. Anything you know that we know, whether it's about his background, his experience, applicable rulings, anything that sort of might give us insight into how he would actually rule? I have not found anything definitive or I haven't found an analogous case that would lead me to say, you know, he's an antitrust talker, he's an antitrust up. He's, he's done a few antitrust cases that were not merger-related cases, or at least not the ones I found. You know, he's, uh, uh, I probably think he's smart because he graduated Yale Law School. Um, he's, you know, he did, did service in government, worked for John Lindsay, and did other work for the governor of New York. Um, but long-time lawyer with, I think, uh, Brown and Wood, if I recall correctly, uh, which was a very eminent New York firm until they merged with Sidley and Austin. But I, I don't see anything in the record that I see having kind of a strong opinion on antitrust per se, as opposed to being what really most district court judges are, which is guys who, or, and, and women who want to look at a set of facts, apply the law, and get upheld in the Court of Appeals. I think he's, I, he, he looks to me to be old school um, in that regard. Great. And then I've just got a couple more. We're coming up on the hour, so probably love to wrap here. But on the states, Blair, question that I just had was, you know, does it matter if some states drop out, or is it only important, you know, that, say, New York or California depart? I, I think it's only important that California and New York could part. And I can't see any motivation for some of the smaller states to drop out. Uh, it, there is a theory that, like, individual deals can be cut for some jobs. But, you know, look, the jobs are uh, – a thousand jobs is not really that material, particularly for New York and California, uh, relative to the cost that they believe would be paid for by consumers by having the reduction in, in competition. Great. And then, Vivek, I just wanted to come back to you in the context of today's headlines around, um, you know, whether it be Altice, Altice or Charter or, or Dish, just kind of your initial thoughts on how we should think about the duopoly of T and Verizon in that context and under the different potential, you know, various scenarios, any, you know, sort of first reads on changes to the competitive landscape? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, we've had a differentiated view on this deal from the get-go where, you know, even if the deal got through absent concessions, we thought it would be a negative for AT&T and Verizon. Obviously, the street's taken a different reaction to that. 
And so, you know, there's a little bit of variance there. But what I'd point out is that if, you know, the cable guys or Dish enters the industry as the result of a deal condition and potentially is motivated to uh, build out a fourth network, um, that would be a huge negative for the incumbents. Uh, They would sort of be facing competition from the pro forma T-Mobile, who would have a vast amount of spectrum as well as a sort of new challenger to the industry. And so, you know, uh, to the extent that we thought a deal was already negative, it would be incrementally even more negative for the incumbents. Okay, great. And Blair, I think I'm going to wrap it with you just kind of uh, you touched a little bit on this earlier, but in the process, what's the next piece of news? You know, how do you see the next two weeks playing out? Yeah, uh, great question and a great way to end it. I expect the next thing to happen would be for the DOJ to announce that it has struck a deal and to announce what that deal is. Or alternatively, to say they haven't struck a deal that satisfies them and they're not going to join the states in soon to block the deal. Um, I think the first is more likely, but we'll, we'll see. Uh, but, the, but the second is not zero. I think some people think there's zero chance of that. I, I, I don't think that. I just think it's less likely. The next thing that happens after that is the FCC puts its order out on the floor and makes it public. So we'll all get to read what the FCC's legal analysis is. And that will be interesting in a lot of different ways for assessing the odds at the trial. But I think we're, that will be getting into the weeds prematurely. Uh, the third thing that happens is a meeting in New York between the parties and the judge, at which some kind of schedule is worked out. Then, of course, we have the uh, actual July meeting at the FCC. It's almost certain to pass. It is certain to pass. Uh, I, I don't believe the Democrats will vote for it. I don't believe that that matters. Um, it'll be interesting whether there are any issues that are raised there, but to provide kind of a separate vehicle for other stakeholders to try to block the deal. But I don't think that's likely to happen. And then, you know, uh, if we get a, if we have a hearing on a preliminary injunction, that hearing obviously would be really important. Judge's uh, determination would be more important. My guess is if the judge rules against the states on the preliminary injunction, the states probably walk. If the judge rules against the companies, the language matters a lot, uh, but I could see the companies deciding to litigate anyway. I could also see them not, but that's a, that, that, that one I think is more language specific. All right. Okay. Yep. And uh, I think we're at one hour, so that's uh, a great place to wrap it. Thank you everyone for joining on the call today and thanks for sending in your questions. Thanks to our speakers, Blair and Vivek. Obviously appreciate your time and apologies if we didn't get to anyone's questions. You can reach out or don't hesitate to reach out because the, the pool team is happy and available to follow up. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes the call. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.